We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lumello. My guest today is in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. He led Jacksonville University to a Final Four in 1970. He was the Rookie of the Year and an MVP in the ABA and led the Kentucky Colonels to a championship in 1975. He was a six-time All-Star in the NBA for the Chicago Bulls and the San Antonio Spurs, and he retired with the highest field goal percentage of all time and is still in the top 12. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Chasing Hardware, the A-Train, Mr. Artis Gilmore. Artis, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Rich, thank you. Thank you for, what a, what an introduction, man. Wow. You know, (laughs) all these places that I've been asked to uh, speak at, I'm going to ask you to uh, come and introduce me, Rich. So <laughs> love the introduction. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, I mean, it's suffice to say you've earned it. Um, and and I, I'll, I'll jump, we'll circle back to this in a second, but I noticed that um, if I did ever introduce you, I would be in good company because when you were inducted into the Hall of Fame, your introducer was none other than Dr. Julius Irving. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, so I'd, I'd be in no. good company. Um, Artis, you were born and, and raised in Chipley, Florida, one of 10 kids. The little town I grew up in, in Chipley, Florida, and with a very large family and very little uh, support as far as uh, income, uh, mother and father struggling, you know, to uh, put bread on the table. So, uh, very, very challenging uh, times and experience, uh, educationally wise, and you know, just so many other uh, uh, well obstacles that were there. And fortunately, I was blessed enough to uh, to overcome them. And um, and and when you went off to high school, so so it was Rolock High School that you went to. Yeah, Ro- Rolike High School, which was a, a, all uh, predominantly a black school. 
Sure. Uh, they probably, the school was actually so small uh, because of certain situations happened with families, kids having to drop out and work. We would have normally about 10 or 12 seniors to graduate per year. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and, and of course, the schools were segregated at that time. So uh, that presented a different uh, uh, dynamics to the that relationship back in those days. Sure. And then and then you transferred high schools, right? I transferred to uh Actually, Dothan is approximately uh, 30, 35 miles from Chipley, with the line being 15 miles from my hometown. And uh, in fact, the way that all really got started was because of the schools were segregated in the summertime, the, 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 the uh, facilities were not available to Blacks. And so they would give us a bus to drive to Dothan and participate in uh, some of festivities up there. So uh, they had a nice swimming pool and, and of course, a nice indoor uh, basketball facility. In fact, in Chipley, we played outdoors, you know, and all the little schools that we com- schools rather we competed against. Uh, they, it was outdoors uh, uh, setting. Uh, to compete in that kind of an environment. And you you become a high school All-American and you initially, before Jacksonville, you go to Gardner-Webb for two years, which at the time was a junior college. Um, Tell me about the decision to go to Gardner-Webb and what your experience was like there. Well, um, Rich, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, transferring, moving to Dalton, Alabama, and, and just because of well, my background is academically, it was a struggle, really, really challenging. And so because I was not really prepared to move, uh, uh, transition into uh, a major institution, uh, decided to go to the junior college, which was Gardner-Webb at that time, to kind of elevate my grades academically so I could, you know, prepare myself to make the transition into a, a four-year institution. Okay. And uh, and pretty successful there. You guys went to two junior college national tournaments, right? That's right. That's right. And then and then it's and then the two years are up and it's time to to you know kind of take it to the next level. What what other schools were you looking at besides Jacksonville or was it going to be Jacksonville all the way? Uh, not really. My colleague, and very dear friend of mine, who passed away some years ago, Ernie Fleming. Yeah, Ernie Fleming. Yeah, you, you and Ernie uh, were deciding to go to, yeah. to the next level. Ernie, yes, Ernie had uh, he had contact Joe. He said, um, "You know, I'm I'm making a decision. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to uh, remain here at uh, Garden Web and be a part of the the development program." Sure. And he said that, you know, I had made contact with the Joe Williams and, and I would uh, I'm going to reach out, you know, see if uh, you know, he, he expressed any interest, you know, uh, continue to pursue me as a possibly a, 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 a well, Jacksonville University uh, player. And so uh, Ern, he said, would you like to call with me? You know, would you like to come along? So I said, yeah. 
I'm in. So he contacted Joe and said, yeah, I'm interested in coming. And I also have this friend of mine, you know, my teammate, Artie Skelmore. Uh, he liked to come along with me. <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, that's the truth. That's great. That's amazing. I, I can only imagine that Joe Williams was pretty happy to take a seven foot one center <laughs> to come yeah, down. With- <laughs> a- absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was just, uh, uh, Joe had put together just a really nice group of players, but that one combination that, uh, that I was able to bring to the, to the club just elevated us to another level. Yeah. And, and you find immediate success at Jacksonville. Um, you, you go into the NCAA tournament your, your first year there, which is obviously your junior year. You guys are, I think, sixth in the country. And you knock off in order Western Kentucky and then Iowa, the school that had talked to you. Yeah. Downtown Freddie Brown on the roster. You knock Absolutely. them off. They're number seven. You knock off number one Kentucky, who has a guy you're going to play with in about a year named Dan Issel. Yeah. Uh, and then you knock off in the final four, you play St. Bonaventure. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, Bob Lanier had hurt his knee in the end of the final eight game. Right. So you play them and you knock them off. And then you face UCLA, which is in between Alcindor and Walton, but they're still pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> and and they they beat you. T- tell me about the experience of of the you know the NCAA tournament that year. Yeah, uh, making it to the final four and and actually knocking off uh, some of the top teams. You know, with being part of uh, March Madness uh, and uh, Cinderella team, Jacksonville University, uh, probably student population about twenty one hundred kids and. Uh, we were able to excel and compete for a national championship. And for me, that was a, a tremendous experience and growth, a, a chance to uh, really kind of uh, experience that challenge on, at the next level, which uh, uh, in competition, I haven't, I didn't have much of that other than, you know, at junior college uh, and probably none existed during my high school career. So that was quite an experience, uh, attempting to step up to meet that challenge at that level. Yeah. And and you're playing, like I mentioned, you know, you're playing Kentucky. They've got Dan Issel. During the regular season, you play Florida State. I think it was your only regular season loss. They had Dave Cowens at center. So you're starting to play guys who you're going to start to see again in a couple of years down the road. Absolutely. I mean, D- Dave Cowan's days over at uh, Florida State was, was tremendous. And uh, apparently when he uh, he ended, we, we split that year. We, we Our first game was at their location. I think uh, we had uh, received some uh, start receiving national uh, recognition and uh, they were able to knock us off uh, we, uh, over at uh, Florida State. And we just thought about it. We, we realized that we were going to uh, take them, uh, play a second game in, um, in Jacksonville on our home floor. Really, that, that was a big game to, uh, in Jacksonville. Considering the area, uh, none basketball really fans at that particular time, but we were able to, fill this uh, Coliseum 
which was uh, capacity at probably about 12,000. And we had about, you know, nine to 10,000 people at this location. And just to watch this second game. And uh, that, that absolutely, that was a sort of a beginning, uh, uh, as we talked about just earlier, uh, experiencing that high level of uh, uh, competition. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, you know, and then in the tournament, you're playing the likes of Iowa and Kentucky and, and then you're facing UCLA in the final, obviously at this point, John Wooden's already won, you know, a bunch of, 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 uh, of NCAA titles. What was that game like? What was the feeling like in the locker room before that game? We were, we were really hyped up because, you know, I, I think during those days they would have that, that first game, like, the runners up and who was going to take third place. Uh, the two teams had lost early in the final four. They played the second, the first game. So in the locker room during that time, I think we were really just getting fired up and uh, feeling that energy, uh, preparing us have to go out and, and compete against a well a known entity like the uh, um, the UCLA Bruins. Yeah. And that team was loaded. Bibby, Wicks, Curtis Rowe, Steve Patterson. Was Steve Patterson team. was the center at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then and then you and, and you guys ultimately lose 80 to 69. You've got a lead early in the game, but they kind of take you over and 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 win kind of going away. Uh, but still, like you said, incredible to think that Jacksonville with its 2000 students or so, uh, you know, is at that level all of a sudden. Yes. Uh, and then and then uh, and then your senior year also successful, but you lose in the first round of the NCAA tournament to Western Kentucky. And then it's time to go pro. And at that point, you got the ABA and the NBA and you do your homework and realize there's probably more money to be made for you in the ABA. Walk me through the decision to go to the ABA versus the NBA. Yeah, a- absolutely. Rich, you mentioned the fact that. I grew up in a, just an extremely large family. In fact, uh, I was uh, the second oldest one in the, in, in, the, uh, in the family. And all of my brothers and sisters were really, really young. And they were struggling at home. So that decision, you know, everybody kind of looked at it. And, and, and at that time, I really didn't explain the, my reason and, and the decision that I, you know, I was making at that particular time. So uh, what happened, you know, as I said before, the large family was part of that decision making. And um, uh, I thought about uh, some of the um, remarks that were made said, listen, you know, you signed this long-term contract, you got to, you'll be able to support your family for, you know, extended period of time. They gave a, a number at that time. And they said, okay, this is guaranteed in the event that you go out to today and practice and break your leg or hurt your leg, you know, and your, your career is over. These funds will be here available for you to use. And so that was the convention. That was a, the very convincing part, recognizing that I would be able to, uh, uh, assume and take some of the pressure off my family. Sure. Sure. And so, and, and interestingly, and it'll come up later, even though you declare that you're going to go to the ABA and the, and the colonels draft you, um, the bulls do take you in the seventh round 
and we'll kind of visit that a little bit later, but they, they do, you know, kind of put their placeholder there for you. Um, but you go to the ABA and now you're playing with Kentucky and your first year you are, this is almost impossible to do. I know Wes Unsell did it. Very few other guys have done it. You're the rookie of the year and the MVP of the, of the league. Your team sees a 24 game improvement year over year, which is astonishing. And you play for the first time with Dan Issel and Louis Dampier, who you then play with for the next five years. Incredible chemistry between the three of you. Tell, tell me about that, you know, kind of the, as that roster came together. Well, uh, Dan and I, we have become very close over the years. Wow. And Dan and I have considerable amount of history together. And, and the, uh, the rewarding part of uh, um, competing in the ABA was, uh, I, I guess, just to elevate the, uh, the recognition for that, that particular league because the league itself was really struggling. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. It just kind of seemed like, you know, team by team, some teams, you know, were thriving, you guys, and some teams were, you know, struggling to make payroll on a week to week basis, it seemed. Yeah. Um, and you come into the league at the same time as Dr. J, Julius Irving, is, as we talked about a little bit ago. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, he gave the uh, introduction speak at your Hall of Fame ceremony. What, what's your relationship like with Dr. J? He obviously, uh, along with you and a few of the other guys we've mentioned, you know, some of the most prominent ABA guys to make the transition to the NBA. What's your relationship with uh, Julius Irving? Uh, uh, Julius and I were very, very close. I I, was, I remember the very first time that I met him, it was like uh, um, it, all the collegiate players uh, versus uh, a semi-pro team at that, during that time was the Schaefer Brewery, Brewers, I think up in Schenectady, New York. And uh, uh, I talked about all the well-known players like Austin Carr and myself and and then there was this guy who received very little recognition over in the corner dressing and that was Julius Servin eventually become Dr. J. You know, he and I developed a, a really, really good relationship over the years and you know we uh we've maintained that. In fact uh, uh a few months ago he came through uh Jacksonville's just spent a couple of days together played around the golf and, and, uh, had dinner together. That's great. And, and so, um, and so you're, you're with the colonels for the first five years of your pro career. Uh, you're an all-star every year. You're all defense four times. Um, and interestingly, the ABA teams and the NBA teams start playing exhibition games against each other. And it's, it's, uh, my guess is it was a little bit of a feeling out process and you guys would hold your own. You, you won most of those games. Yes, we did. And, you know, and, and I don't know if that was the objective that proved that we were capable of um, being uh, in the NBA of NBA franchise, but uh, a, a number of those players in, in the league, they had really started to age, you know, and so uh, you had, of course, you had a young player like Luel Sender, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who just uh, come into the league, and of course, Dave Collins. So it, it was a, a, a new, starting a, a new era, and that was part of that, 
I think the the uh, interim games playing against each other, the the Colonels versus uh, uh, NBA team, Baltimore and the Chicago Bulls and and the Milwaukee Bucks at that time. I think we played those three. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that sounds right. And in um, in nineteen seventy five, your fourth year, Hubie Brown is now the coach. Uh, again, it's still you and Issel and Dampier. You know, you're still kind of the, the core of the lineup. There's a one-game playoff for seeding uh, in the playoff, you know, to see who's going to have the top seed. You play the Nets and Dr. J. You get 33 rebounds in the game, and you guys win. Uh, the Colonels win, and that sets you off to on the road to win the championship that year. Tell me about that championship run and, and defeating the Pacers in the finals. Well, first of all, it was long overdue. The, my rookie year, we had, as you mentioned, we had the best record. I was uh, MVP of the league and, of course, rookie of the year. And we won, I think, 60, 68 games and lost 14. And and uh, we were eliminated the first round by the, by the Nets, Rick Barry and, and John Roach at that, during that time. And so... You know, we went through a couple of situations like that, and then we played the uh, the Pacers at an earlier time uh, for the for the title. We had just eliminated the Carolina Cougars, and we went over and, and played the uh, we played the, uh, the the Pacers, and they beat us. And then that was and one we was expecting to win too. Uh, we lost, and then the next uh, in '75 when the we were able to come overcome all those obstacles year after you know four years in the fourth year in. And I, I think I saw that Hubie Brown later, and you know, here's a guy who then coached for you know whatever 20 or 30 years in the NBA. He was an announcer forever. He was coach of the year twice. He he looked back on that team and said that it was the greatest team he ever coached. In fact, no other team comes close. Do you kind of share that sentiment with him? Well, you know, uh, Hubie Brown has been one, I, I know he's one of the greatest uh, uh, storytellers that in, in the history of, of the game. He <laughs> explained details as if you were from another country that had never ex- been exposed to the game. Uh, Hubie can explain it to you and it, uh, in a way that you can understand it. Um, so... I, and I think about Hilby, he was in the NBA for a number of years after leaving uh, Kentucky, the, the Colonels, and going to the Atlanta Hawks. And he was very successful for a number of years. And after actually being a, uh, receiving the award, Coach of the Year. And then he stopped. He was out of the game for probably close to 20 years. And then come back to the NBA and receive, uh, you know, coach of the year again. Yeah. So absolutely, those type compliments, if they come from Huey Brown, has a significant impact. Oh, yeah. And and he had, before he came to you guys, he had been an assistant coach with those Bucks teams with uh, Kareem yeah. Abdul-Jabbar, Oscar Robertson. So, yeah, yeah. High, high praise. <laughs> high praise. Yes, I, I, I remember Huey when he was at Duke University. And one of the assistants, yeah. Um, yeah, the crazy thing about Hubie Brown, he went to Niagara. He, Larry Costello, who coached yeah. Alcindor to that first title with the Bucks, 
and Frank Layden were all on the same team. Layden, who ultimately coached the Jazz. That's, uh, yeah. that's And your owner, John Y. Brown, uh, you win the title. And at the same time in 75, the Golden State Warriors are winning the NBA title. And John Y. Brown offers a million. Well, I think the ABA offers a million dollars to the NBA and the Warriors to play a one game uh, challenge match with you. And then John Y. Brown offers a million dollars. They ultimately say no. But then you end up playing each other in an exhibition game a few months later and you guys win. How heated was that game? Well, you know, I, I didn't think anything of, the, of that except uh, that, that challenge, I think I heard that one of the networks was interested in putting up a, a number of dollars as well as John Y. Brown uh, kind of matching the pot. And it was going to be like a five-game series, the best of five, you know. Um, well, certainly is the winner. But, you know, it was just an incredible, um, more or less publicity uh, uh, recogni- attempt to receive recognition for the, for the ABA. Because, you know, you think about during the era and those times, there was uh, – there was very little exposure on, on the national scene about the uh, ABA and to say statistics wise, you know, in a major ne- in a newspaper, there was very little information there about the, uh, uh, about the ABA. So um, the NBA did a good job of suppressing and keeping, you know, you know really challenging their opponents, which was ABA to try to force them out of business, you know? So. Right. And, and then, and then after the 76 season, so your fifth year in the league, <clears throat> it's, it's it, the ABA and the NBA ultimately decide to merge. And at that point, there's seven teams in the ABA because three had folded like during that season. So there's seven teams, Virginia, the squires fold almost immediately again. So now you're down to six um, because they have financial issues. The NBA says, we're going to take four. Pacers, Nuggets, Spurs, Nets. And the other two, they say, we'll pay you basically to go out of business. So they, they pay Kentucky $3 million. Kentucky accepts it, and the Colonels are no more. The Spirits of St. Louis strike a deal. The owners strike a deal. They, they don't want the $3 million. They want a cut of the four teams going over to the NBA of their national TV contracts this has obviously been made into a documentary. Do you remember any of the details of that at the time, or is that something that just kind of came out later? I'm always curious. Well, that was uh, obviously that was at a business decision level. And uh, the only thing that I was aware of that uh, John Y. Brown had made uh, an effort to try and, and, and keep the uh, colonels intact and, and keep them in, uh, in Louisville. But uh, uh, to uh, uh, being unsuccessful at that, you know, uh, the the door the colonels closed their doors, and uh, and the rest uh, you talked about spoke about this gentleman that owned the St. Louis Spirits and how they was able to negotiate this phenomenal <laughs> deal where everybody else had just taken the money and run moved on. Yeah. And of course, they were looking at long term investment. Yeah. 
I mean, incredible vision to think that you you're taking, you know, a percentage of zero is still zero, which is what the national TV contract was at the time. It's amazing to think it's at least three hundred million dollars. I know they finally, you know, kind of terminated the contract and you know figured out a resolution. <laughs> yeah, just amazing. Um, and but so so there's a dispersal draft for the teams whose players are, you know, there's no team anymore. And the Bulls had drafted you five years earlier. So that's how you end up in Chicago? You know, that's what I was told. I've been, I've been told, I was told that. But uh, for his, uh, a definitive yes, I'm not, I don't have absolute knowledge of whether or not that that was the arrangement. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And, and so, so you go to the Bulls. And they had just been this, you know, scrappy team with Jerry Sloan and Bob Love and Norm Van Leer. But pretty shortly after you get there, Sloan is retired, uh, Love is traded. And so now it's kind of you and, and Norm Van Leer um, and a guy like Mickey Johnson. Um, they had they only had 24 wins the year before you got there. So this is a team that's struggling. You guys get you get there and they go up 20 wins. Uh, they go, they, all of a sudden they win 44 games that first year. Um, and you lose to Bill Walton and the Blazers who would ultimately win the title that year. Tell me about that first year in Chicago, the transition to the NBA and, you know, what it was like playing in the playoffs against the trailblazers and Walton. Well, <laughs> initially, as you indicated before, I arrived when I arrived in Chicago, uh, Jerry Sloan had had some, some surgery and I, on his knee, I don't think they re- recognized the severity of it until, you know, later when everyone was anticipating him in that particular year to return, come back. And then we, uh, uh, beyond that, you know, I was the first pick, and then we had picked uh, player Scott May, who was a player, uh, college, collegiate player of the year and at Indiana. And uh, we had a, a, a good number of, uh, well, a program on paper that was supposed to have been a pretty good setup. But unfortunately, you know, uh, Norm, I mean, Norm were not able, not Norm, but uh, uh, Scott was not healthy. And uh, of course, Jerry Sloan, um, he was unable to come back. His, you know, his uh, knee did not heal, and so Scott May and, and was out. And but we we put together, uh, you know, you said a ragtag uh, team, and we made a, a an incredible run at the very end of the season, and was able to get into a, a playoff round. It's amazing. It was a the best two out of three. Uh, uh, we flew out to Portland, and uh, we lost the game. Came back to flew back to Chicago, and of course won that game, and then flew all the way back out to uh, Portland uh, for a three. You know, the best two out of three game series. But that that was pretty uh, crazy back during that time. But you know, um, we we had an opportunity to win that game. Uh, uh, Bill Walton had fouled out. Maurice Lucas had fouled out, and Dave Twazek, who was was a key player for them uh, in those earlier years, 
Uh, all the, the major, the best players were on the bench. We, there was a few seconds left on the clock, and the, and the ball was supposed to uh, uh, come in to me. But something happened, and we it did not it did not happen like it was supposed to, and uh, we end up losing the game. Yeah, and then and they go on to win the title that year, right? They, and they, they go on to win the title. Yeah, knock off the 76ers. And you know, it's funny you just mentioned something about the travel. You know, it just seems crazy—a three-game series from Chicago to Portland, back to Chicago, back to Portland. You lose, so you have to come back. Yeah. And and this is at a time when you're not flying on. Like, there's no team jet at that point, right? Uh, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Bunch of very big. Uh, we we, we had first class, but you know the schedule and walking through the airports and and uh, just the challenge of you know having to fly in that day and play that night. You know, so yeah, a little different than today. But just a little different. <laughs> um. And and then and then Larry Costello comes to Chicago to be the coach, and he's the guy who Hubie had coached with up in Milwaukee. Um, but Scott May continues to you know kind of suffer with injuries. Uh, you draft Reggie Theus, you know, there's a guy who can score. Um, but the you know the team struggles, um, and then ultimately Jerry Sloan comes back to coach, and you guys have a resurgence. You you jump up to 45 wins. What was it like all of a sudden having Sloan be your head coach? Well, it, it was a learning process for Jerry. Jerry had just made the transition from, from being from a player on the court to, uh, uh, of course, now as a head basketball coach. Sure. And so he it was like a, a learning process for him as well. And uh, uh, it was good. You know, he had that uh, really high level of energy that he, he has always brought into the game. And so he was able to elevate the, uh, the and, and motivate the, the players, the guys to get them ready, ready to play. Yeah. Um, and what was, uh, what was Reggie Theus like as a player coming in from UNLV? Uh, Reggie uh, was, you know, um, he, he was, he was really kind of wild and out of control. But uh, when he played, I mean, and that was the kind of way he, an up-tempo type player. But uh, that that was the, the, his style, and that's the way he, the, what helped him to be successful on the court. Just the right. quickness, his size, being able to handle the ball, and just do uh, magical things on the court. And he was he was really good. But we, you know, I look back earlier, some of the decisions that the uh, Bulls had made earlier. Like, they drafted uh, Orlando Woolridge, who's a first-round draft choice. And when you, and Woolridge came in, what was that? Was that your last year there when Woolridge came in? Yes, yes. Uh, the year before, in fact, uh, he, uh, he, uh, he arrived really late that, that, that particular year. Okay, like late to training camp? Uh, yeah, late, late to the game. Okay, gotcha. Um, and, uh, and the team that last year you're in Chicago, the team struggles again, you'd had a nice year in Sloan's first year, but then you struggle. And at the end of that year, you asked to be traded. Like the losing is, is getting to be a, a lot and you asked to be traded. Is that how that played out? <laughs> uh, from my knowledge, I don't remember uh, asking to be traded, but, oh, uh, is that right? okay. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, it, it was, it was kind of odd the way it happened, but. You know, it turned out I ended up uh, 
going to San Antonio, was there for five years. And, w- and when you got to San Antonio, Stan Albeck's the coach, and he had been an assistant at uh, the Colonels when you were with them. What was it like right. playing for him or coming back to play with him? Stan and I had uh, uh, history together. So, uh, you know, he, w- he was out uh, coaching the Lakers for a while, and then he was able to get that job in San Antonio. And so uh, it, it was good with just uh, experience, the experience that uh, we had shared earlier as a, uh, a champion in ABA and then the amount of uh, experience that he gained while coaching with uh, Jerry West and uh, with the Lakers and then moving on to San Antonio, having a tremendous amount of success. And, and I, I was able to come in and uh, – uh, help make a difference. Yeah, uh, you 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 join a roster. You've got George Gervin, the Ice Man. You've got Mike Mitchell, who you know was never shy about uh, scoring. Um, you're the division champs. You you take the Lakers to I think six games in the Western Finals, um, and then and then Albeck left after that year. Do, do you remember what happened there? I do not. I do not remember the details of uh, what happened, what transi- transpired during that time. But I know he he goes and coached in the Nets for a right. short period of time and then uh, move on. Yeah, yeah, he went to the Nets. And, and then the team struggles for a couple of years. The wins are more like in the high 30s for the next couple of years. Um, I think Cotton Fitzsimmons had come in. And then yeah, you go back to Chicago um, and you're, you're, I think that's the 87, 88 season and you're starting. So now Michael Jordan's there, the rest of those championship bulls, the rest of them haven't been drafted yet, but you're there playing with him. What was that like that, that first half of the season with him? Well, it, it was fascinating. Michael was entering his uh, fourth year and, um, he, he knew he had, of course, won the scoring title. He had, you know, won, uh, a couple of individual and so Michael had long-term focus of winning the, winning the, uh, the, the title and nothing else. And so one of the things that really drove him was pushing himself in practice and, and elevating everybody else. I mean, normally guys go and they just kind of go through the motion in practice, but uh, Michael really brought about uh, special intensity in practice. Yeah. I, could, I lived in Chicago for a few years after that. It was in kind of the early 90s. And you would hear about the practices, like the, the level of intensity of those practices, yeah. Yeah. you know, cutthroat. Um, and, then, and then kind of midway through the season, you're, you're traded to Boston. What was, uh, what was the story there? I, I'm still asking myself that question. <laughs> but anyways, I was released from the Bulls. I didn't have a guaranteed contract. And so... Um, I was kind of sitting out there in the cold in the weather, but anyways, uh, I get a call from the uh, Celtics, and so we were was able to work a short term uh, a deal out, and uh, so I ended up going to Boston. And what was that like? So that that's basically the last half of your last year in the NBA. You play for the Celtics, so now you're in Boston Garden. You're with you know, like you said, Larry Bird, Parrish, McHale, um, Casey Jones is the coach at that point, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay, yeah. um, and that team, you you go to the Eastern Finals against Detroit. That's right. Okay, uh, what 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 was your your half a season in Boston like playing on that squad? 
Well, the, it was just an a incredible experience. And the intensity, the environment was such different from uh, all the other locations because Boston, uh, over the years, the, the generations are really inserted you know, from uh, Red back all the way to, you know, to uh, Casey Jones, that they they all worked for Red. And, and so they had that same you know, mentality win. And, and so you can feel that same environment. When I tr- transitioned from all the other locations to the Celtics and being able to uh, eliminate a couple of teams and especially uh, the series between uh, um, Atlanta and the, uh, the Celtics, it was uh, Dominique Wilkins and Larry Bird's show. And, of course, Doc Rivers being in there. And they they had just a really, really good young team. But uh, it was it was uh, entertaining to sit back and watch them and caught a fragment too at the same time because my frights were that – uh, Atlanta had a chance to knock us off, you know, and we wouldn't have an, we would not, for me, that experience on not advancing because I was kind of hoping that we had a shot at winning the championship. And that was kind of part of the reason I had signed with the, because I was also offered uh, an opportunity to go to um, uh, Phoenix, you know, Cotton Consumer had gone back to, he returned to uh, uh, Phoenix. And so he, he had made, but anyways, uh, it was a great experience in uh, Boston, and the way to, and the way to finish my career with uh, uh, really true three or four Hall of Famers, you know. Um, and then you go to Italy for a year, and it's funny. Uh, about three interviews ago, I I interviewed uh, Bob McAdoo, who had you know played in the NBA for quite some time, and then with the Lakers towards the end of his career, and then he went to Italy. Did you have any conversations with him as you made the decision to go to Bologna or was that just completely independent? Yeah, that was independent. And then once I arrived over there, I certainly had a chance to play against uh, Bob on one occasion. And uh, Milan, he played yeah. for. Yeah, so uh, we, we, talk, we talk, we speak of that pretty often, even now. Yeah. Yeah, he was there. He was there for quite some time. I think he was there for like six or seven years, something like that. Yes. Uh, uh, was it a good experience for you that year? It was, and and that educational experience, just transitioning out of basketball at the level I, I played at, and, but still at this point, very competitive uh, in the European in that league, and you know uh, the magic part of it is winning the cup, and it's like all total. Up all of Europe and competing for this cup. And it's, uh, the competition is really high and, and uh, uh, the excitement was just incredible. Yeah. And that was kind of right at the point where a lot of the big stars in Europe would kind of prove themselves in Europe. And then they were starting to jump over to the NBA. So you probably start, you probably got to see some of those guys, you know, in their early years. Absolutely. Uh, it, that transition period was starting uh, during that time, that I don't think when I went uh, uh, was during the time I was in Italy, I don't think they had any players in the, in, in the NBA. Uh, but shortly, you know, the next couple of few years later, that's when the uh, 
uh, the draft age start coming about. Uh, well, the NBA brought about uh, looking at international players. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Um, and then a couple couple things that I want to I want to ask you about. First of all, and these are kind of one offs. Uh, in your Hall of Fame acceptance speech, you thanked. Uh, Jerry Colangelo. You, you spoke specifically to Jerry Colangelo. I'm curious what your relationship was with or is with him. Well, uh, a number of people had approached him and, and, and shared uh, a number of thoughts uh, with uh, he and, and a number of uh, media outlets that isn't it kind of funny that uh, artists scale more a tremendous amount of uh, accomplishments is not even considered as a Hall of Famer, I consider, have that consideration. And so Jerry was an individual that had tremendous influence and he was able to uh, put it on the books and get it done. So uh, absolutely, I pay tribute to those thoughts. Okay. Also, I, I, be I believe this number is still correct. You, you might be able to correct me on it if I'm wrong. I think you retired or you, I'm sorry, graduated from college as one of only five guys in NCAA history to average 20 over 20 points a game and over 20 rebounds a game. Um, and to this day, I think you are still the leading rebounder of all time in uh, NCAA with like over 22 or 23 rebounds a game. Um, is that still the case to your knowledge? Uh, you know, I'm not sure of that statistics, but you know, I think, I like to say I had some incredible, uh, impressive uh, collegiate uh, statistics. And you look at uh, the number of players who have been elected. Uh, in fact, they, this happened uh, uh, just before they introduced the Hall of Famers. But the collegiate Hall of Famers, the guys who've been successful in that area. And I, and. It's ironic that I never that I haven't been acknowledged as as one of those elite players yeah. at the collegiate level. Yeah, I mean to to think taking a school that you know let's be honest didn't have much of a basketball tradition, you get them to the Final Four, you put up those types of numbers that you know in some cases still stand today. You know all these years later, it's pretty amazing. Um, and then I guess I want to wrap up with. Uh, obviously, you know, as all things do, you know, things go through cycles in the sixties in the NBA, you had, you know, obviously Bill Russell and, and Will Chamberlain, who were two of the guys you cited as your idols growing up. Um, yes. And you had other centers, you had Nate Thurmond and Walt Bellamy and, and some other guys. Um, but I look at the seventies as like the golden age of, of the centers in, in the NBA and into the eighties. And, you know, you start, obviously, there's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but there's also Bill Walton and yourself. And, and you know, sometimes power forwards play center at different times, but like Bob McAdoo and Daryl Dawkins. I'd love to just kind of get your thoughts. It can be kind of quick thoughts on, on each of a bunch of these guys. Um, is, is that okay to do? Sure, sure. So I, I'll start with Kareem um, because, you know, he's kind of the obvious one. Uh, you know, tell me about your relationship and, you know, kind of playing against, uh, you know, Kareem over the years. Well, Kareem was uh, just an incredible challenge for me. You know, I, I really emphasized my defense and, and for uh, to prepare myself to uh, compete against him with that just an extraordinary 
sweeping sky hook, you know, and ways to try and defend it. Uh, so it, it, that presented a, just an incredible challenge for me uh, against this incredible, phenomenal uh, athlete, um, Kareem. Sure. Uh, how about uh, how about Bill Walton? Obviously, injuries, you know, were an uh, issue for him. But what about him? Yes, when Bill was really healthy, boy, he was a tremendous force on the on the court. Uh, I re- I remember just competing against him, and uh, uh, that really uh, that that tough series that we talked about spoke about earlier, uh, the best two out of three, and and competing against Bill and the thing, watching his versatility, you know, being able to move out on the floor. You talk about centers just uh, having, especially Kareem with that, the different skill set. And um, um, Kareem with the hook shot and and Bill Walton with the sort of a two-hand over top, the jump shot, bank shot off the basket. And, and the, the individual styles and his, his ability to move away uh, from the floor on the perimeter out near the, the top, around the, the, the bottom of the key uh, foul line, you know, that nice little bank shot. He was, he was uh, very successful at that. And uh, he, he just, and it was a great rebounder and a, uh, uh, had a great, under, uh, really good understanding of the game. And uh, sometimes when you have that, that kind of a mindset focus where you're a coach and a player on the court, and I thought that's what uh, Bill kind of brought to his team and, and, and a leadership category. Sure. How about, how about a guy who came over from the ABA with you, uh, Moses Malone? You saw him when he was coming right out of high school in, in I guess, first of all, Utah and then St. Louis. Um, and his career, you know, the length, you know, kind of mirrored that of yours. Uh, tell me about Moses Malone. Moses was just uh, incredible, uh, high energy. You know, I was just surprised that we lost him whenever we did. Uh, but he he worked hard all the time. Even you know, just think about after he retired from the game, he was uh, continuing hard work working individual uh, uh, conditioning himself, preparing himself uh, health-wise. And um, on the court, he presented uh, issues for me because he was always like, it was always moving. And uh, he, 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 he tossed the ball up like he was rebound, playing rebound to play with himself. You know, he and then, you know, alone, tossing the ball off the basket, missing it, and grabbing his rebound because uh, that excess energy, the way he's moving around the basket. So uh, Moses, with his size being, at, at of course, being a little shorter than me, he's just created, uh, and, and, and his quickness around the basket created problems for me. Gotcha. How about, how about Bob Lanier? Bob Lanier was a little different, a little left-handed jump shot at the round at the top of the key and uh, over in the corner. I mean, he felt really comfortable doing it, and he had the ability. He could put it on the floor as well, and the good post up, and he play, he played with his, uh, his back to the basket. So, uh, and, and plus, he weighed two, a couple of pounds more than me, so 
<laughs> in that respect, he created some uh, some situations for me. That's it. That's funny. How about the, the uh, sometimes it's fascinating. Like you look at the the bullets um, back in the day, Elvin Hayes and Wes Unseld. Hayes taller than Unseld, but Unseld kind of was the, the the true center, right? What was it? What was it like playing? You know, kind of that front court. Well, uh, Wes, it, he was even though he was a smart, really tough player, uh, his needs had started to really give him issue. So Elvin Hayes was kind of the, you know, uh, the high post player, the pick and roll. In fact, uh, uh, I played center against, uh, uh, at that particular time, playing center against West was not really looking for a factor to be offensively effective. You know, he was always looking uh, to set really nice hard picks for Elvin Hayes to come over and shoot the jumper and, and of course, that was uh, uh, kind of a bread and butter play. But anyways, uh, Mickey Johnson, you mentioned Mickey Johnson. Mickey had to play Alvin Hayes. And and so the coach said, well, you know, I think we're going to switch it around. We're going to put artists on E. Alvin Hayes. And Mickey, you play uh, and you play West because West is not going to be that active going to the basket. So I was running a couple of times and I was saying, bang right into this pick. And so uh, I said, Mickey, you got to call out the picks left and right. You got to yell it out. Yeah. So, and a few minutes later, bang, I'm in to run into another pick. And so I said to coach, well, you know, we, we got to switch this around. You got to take Elvin and I try to help as much as possible. So um I think we we always had a difficult time matching up with the uh, the, the bullets because of that factor. Even though West Sunset was a, a fact, that big body of his being his presence on the floor uh, and his knowledge and experience of how the game needed to be played and how he could make a contribution uh, was a was a factor. Sure. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me that getting hit by Unseld is probably like getting hit by a defensive end. Um, and then, and then a little bit later on, uh, you know, it, it, as you're, you know, in your last couple of years, all of a sudden, guys like Ewing are coming into the league, and Elijah Wan's coming into the league. Uh, Ralph Sampson. What were some of those guys like? Well, uh, I think Ralph had may have been in the league, and no, and then they drafted Akeem Elijah Wan. It was. It was tough after you, you say you fake Ralph Sampson out, then all of a sudden here come bringing up the rear is Akeem Olajuwon. So it was a tough challenge, but fortunately I was an old veteran, so I was able to have a little bit of success until those guys start gaining experience. And then, then of course, the, the tides turn. Sure. <laughs> how, about, uh, how about Patrick Ewing? Patrick uh, created problems for me as well. I mean, he was playing him in New York City, man, was just like uh, getting run over by a bus. I guess <laughs> he, 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 you know, he was the man in New York, and uh, they loved him. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he's, he was a, a great player on on the, the low post, and you know, he he was really comfortable out in or uh, on the perimeter shoot, taking a jump shots as well. Yeah. Um, last one, I'll jump back to the seventies. One guy just popped into my mind, Daryl Dawkins. What was it like playing against him? Daryl Dawkins, I mean, just an incredible talented uh, individual. 
and also an individual that would made it move directly from high school to the uh, to the professional level. Sure. Uh, but Dale said he was such an idol of mine that uh, he that's the reason he decided to take 53 as well. You know, as he remember, and I remember when we were playing the, a double header uh, game, and I don't remember exactly the location, but he just come running from his locker room over to my locker room just to just to greet me. And uh, and I think about, you know, Daryl, we, we develop a really close relationship, but very competitive on the court. I mean, he was he was really tough and big and strong and he, I don't think he realized what his, his uh, capability was. Sure. He was another Florida guy, right? Similar to you? Yes, out of Orlando. Absolutely. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, that's cool. That's, it's great. It's, it's just fun. You know, you, you were there. You know, you were one of the guys. You're the Hall of Famer. It's just fun hearing your take on a bunch of these other guys, you know, from the era because um, that, that was a fun era to watch. Um, well, you know what? It, this has been a lot of fun, uh, you know, kind of walking through, you know, from your, your early years through the Jacksonville years and your years in the ABA and the NBA and getting your, your take on a couple of these guys. I, I really appreciate um, uh, you taking the time to, to sit down with Chasing Hardware Artists. I really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely, Rich. My pleasure. Truly my pleasure. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.